I kind of feel like I need to maybe apologize a little bit for starting out so heavy. <laughs> um, but I want you to feel that. And I know around this season, every year, there's, there is a lot of joy. A lot of us love this season, but there's also a lot of heaviness and a lot of heartache. And for those who are not in a good place, the holiday season can be the easily the hardest season. And I know a lot of us are feeling that uh, right now. Uh, for a variety of different reasons with maybe what's going on in your own life, in your own story, but also what, with, with what's going on in, in the world. You know, if you uh, rewind the clock back just several years, uh, my wife Megan and I, we moved to L.A. with our daughter Paige, and uh, we went out there to start seminary and to be part of a, a leadership development program out there. And we had Chloe, added her to our family when we were out there, and we moved in. Many of you know we lived in a two-bedroom apartment with Bill and Nicole. And so there's the four of us in one bedroom and the two of, uh, two of them in the other bedroom. And it was kind of like college, except for we had spouses and children. And we were all up in each other's business and living on the cheap. And so it, it felt like college. And it was, a really good, it was a really good season of life. It really, really was. Uh, miraculously, we left still liking each other, which is amazing in and of itself. Um, you know, but very quickly in the, moving into the L.A. area, it became clear to us, at least, that we wouldn't be probably settling down there. You know, we, we, there are things we loved. We loved, uh, I loved the artistic presence in the city and the energy of the city, um, the food, the diversity. Uh, you got to love the weather and the beaches, you know, being able to snowboard and surf in one day is a pretty amazing thing. But there are other things that, you know, we really could have done without. We didn't like so much, like the smog, which is basically like a dirty fog that is there all the time. Um, you know, the, uh, the helicopters were always flying overhead where we lived, uh, and the traffic was easily the worst. And I remember grocery days because going and getting groceries, all you needed was a little bit of traffic and you never knew it was going to hit. But if you got a little bit of traffic on the freeway, it'd be an all-day affair just getting groceries. And I've been thinking about that season a lot this week um, because the place where we lived is San Bernardino County. And the place that we bought our groceries was just a hop, skip, and a jump away uh, from where many of you know this week, uh, 14 people were, innocent men and women were killed and 17 others were were injured. And, you know, and, and just watching this week as, once again, um, we uh, try to make sense of and respond to yet another mass shooting, you know. And you could see it all over Obama's face as he's answering questions. And, you know, it's like one part exhaustion, but it's also one part like, I've already said this, you know. I've given this speech before. I've answered these questions before, you know. And, and watching the response on, on social media was really interesting, and uh, I don't know if you saw this, but it actually created quite a stir and a bit of a backlash because you had a lot of the GOP candidates and their initial response was, hey, you know, thoughts and prayers to the victims and their families in San Bernardino. But then the Democratic candidates, many of them were like, we've got to do something. This is why we need to take action. There's a problem. And it was very, very interesting. In fact, there was, I don't know if you saw the Daily News article. They had a front page article and you can throw the photo up there. And this was the article. It says, God isn't fixing this with photos of the GOB candidates and their tweets about responding with prayer. You know, and you can feel it, right? You can feel the weight of it. And, and I, un, I can completely understand the sentimentality. On the one hand, for those who don't believe, of course they don't believe there's any value in prayer. What a waste of time. But even for those who do, and there's certainly many, of, many people who do who still fall into this camp, are frustrated because they're like, why aren't we doing something about this? You know, and if you're not going to act, keep your prayers, Keep them to yourself. I don't want them if you're not going to do something about it. 
You know, and so as I've been sitting on this and wrestling with this, and especially in light of the series that we're in, I have to wonder if maybe, just maybe at times, if God's response to us doesn't sound a little bit like that. That if you're not going to act, keep your prayers. Because I don't want to hear them. You know, in a couple weeks, we're getting ready to celebrate Christmas. We're going to celebrate Christmas with millions of people all over the world. And we celebrate the the God-child coming to us in the flesh as a vulnerable little baby. But that child grew up, and he, he began his public ministry, and he pronounced some earth-shattering things about what God is up to in the world. And so we've been looking at this time in Jesus' life. He's begun his public ministry, and this crowd has gathered, and he's been going all over the countryside saying, you know, the, the kingdom of God is at hand, and it's available to everybody right here. It's beginning right here uh, right now. And, and the crowds, and he's demonstrating the power of that kingdom in all kinds of ways. And the crowd swells and grows. And then Jesus goes up on the side of the mountain, and his disciples gather right around him, and, and the crowd around them. And he begins to proclaim some things to them. You know, and he says, I've got some good news, and maybe some not so good news for you. The good news is everything that I've been saying about the kingdom of God and its availability right here, right now to you, it's true. But maybe the not so good news especially to those of you who are particularly uh, powerful, have means, uh, to those to whom have advantages and opportunities that many others don't, the perhaps not so good news is that what I'm doing, it's not going to look like what you think. And it's not going to come to and come through the kind of people who tend to get ahead in this world. It's very, very different. And so he steps up and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And blessed are those who mourn. And blessed are the meek. And this week where we're honing in, he says, blessed, who would have thought, are the hungry and the thirsty. And he says this, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. He says, blessed are the hungry, right? Blessed are the thirsty. Blessed are those who long and ache and yearn for righteousness. And of course, the hinge point is what exactly does he mean by righteousness. Because I think for a lot of us, when we read this, when we hear the word righteousness, if you have any church background, or even if you don't, I think where our minds immediately start to go is like moral virtue, right? Personal piety, inner spirituality, growing spiritually, you know, being really, really spiritual. And if that's what Jesus meant, then really what the way this, this would read is, blessed are those who want to be really spiritual, for they shall be really spiritual, you know? And, and the truth is, that, that doesn't even come close to really getting to the heart of what Jesus is saying here. And the reason it's confusing and doesn't strike us at first reading this way is because in many languages, most languages, including in the Greek of the New Testament, there were not different words for righteousness and justice. They were the same word. Both concepts meshed together. So when you're reading and you, and you come across the words righteousness in one sentence and justice in the next. The truth is that's, that's the same word. You can't pry them apart. You can't separate them. They are, they are enmeshed and meshed together. And so what Jesus is saying when he uses this, and by the way, I should say this, this is also the reason that there are many New Testament scholars, including like N.T. Wright, uh, Glenn Stassen, Eugene Peterson, many, many others, who when they translate this, word, this, this verse, they don't use the word righteousness. In fact, the way they translate it is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. 
for the world to be made right, for things to be different than they are, for the world to be as God intends for it to be. It's, and it's, it's not, when I use the word justice too, I think our, our, our mind immediately goes to like judicial justice, you know, where it's like you're guilty or you're innocent and you drop the gavel and there's consequences and that's the way that it goes. But that's, it's not that kind of justice, right? It's what I would say is what we might call restorative justice, right? Restorative justice is that which brings deliverance to the oppressed and freedom to those in bondage that brings the world and those in it a little bit closer to what God intends for this world uh, to be. And I think a really good illustration of this is the woman caught in adultery. And if you're not familiar with the story, there, in that particular time, it was illegal uh, to, to get caught in adultery. And very curiously, the woman is caught, but the man isn't. I thought it takes two, but he is off the hook. And they take this woman and they drag her to Jesus and they say, what's just? Jesus, you know the law, right? Justice means we carry out the death penalty. That's what justice looks like. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. That is the law. That would be just. So I tell you what, whoever amongst you are without sin, you get to cast the first stone. And one by one they leave. And her life is saved. And that is restorative justice. What Jesus did in that moment is righteous. Right? And so it is moral virtue, but it's so much more. Right? Jesus did this because he's full of love and compassion. He's full of moral virtue. But it's not moral virtue that stops there. It's moral virtue that moves outward and expresses itself in restorative justice. You have to have both. Right, restorative justice moves us beyond personal piety because personal piety is really about me, right? Moral virtue is about me, growing spiritually, holiness. It tends to be about me. But when we allow it to move out of us, restorative justice moves us to us. And when you have one without the other, we can start to actually buy into the mistaken idea that, that God is really just concerned with our spiritual condition but not our social arrangements. And nothing could be further, nothing could be further from the truth. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for that kind of righteousness. Blessed are those who long and ache and yearn for the world to be made right, for the kingdom of God to come here and now. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for those kinds of things, for they will be satisfied if, and it's a pretty big if, they can stay hungry for those kinds of things. And this is where I think for us in particular, Uh, we have a pretty big problem. Because to ache and yearn for the world to be different requires a a dissatisfaction with the way that things are. And for us, uh, that's tough. Uh, Because we are comparatively some of the wealthiest people on the planet. And we're part of the most powerful nation in the world. And you got to understand, we don't, When we hear Jesus' words, we don't all hear them the same. So when Jesus got up on that mountaintop, you've got this whole mishmash of humanity, and you've got people all over the faith spectrum, belief and unbelief. You've got powerful and powerless. right? You've got people who have significant means, and you've got people who are poor, oppressed people, people with much and people with very little, and they didn't all hear the words the same way, which is why Jesus' words always elicit very different responses depending on who's doing the listening and the vantage point from where they're they're hearing. And to those who were poor and oppressed, Jesus' words were like cold water to a parched soul. They were life. But to the wealthy and the powerful, 
Jesus' words about the kingdom of God can be a little bit intimidating. Right, we don't hear them the same. I just want to imagine uh, with me, for you, if you will, go ahead and put up the first photo. If you've had a chance to travel the world in developing nations, you know that this is a reality that's not so uncommon. And that right this very moment, there are millions around the world whose life looks like that. And I'll tell you, they hear these words very different than you and me. I want you to imagine them hearing the words of Jesus and those who that is their lot in life, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have nothing to give. Blessed are the destitute. Blessed are those who are down and out at the bottom of the social ladder, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for what they've lost or for what they will never have, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, those at the bottom of the food chain, those who who don't have the ability or the opportunity to, to scratch and claw their way to the top, for they will inherit the earth. Right? And blessed for those, are those who long for the world to be different, who yearn and ache and hunger and thirst for the world to be as God intends for it to be, where things like poverty and injustice and abuse and destitution and death and suffering do not exist anymore. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that is really good news. They are life. All right, go to the next photo, if you will. I'm not sure that they hear the words the same way. And just so you know, that's, that's me. And I, and I venture to guess that's closer to where more of us are than the first photo. Right? And so the truth is, like, we've got to just come to the realization that when we hear the words of Jesus, we hear them very, very different because we don't hear them as poor, oppressed Galilean peasants for which the world is set against us. We hear them as the Romans, right? the conquering peoples, right? the ones for which the world has bent our direction, right? the ones who have more advantages and more wealth that will go through our hands, whether it's in our bank account or not, more opportunities than the vast majority of the people uh, around the world. The way the world is, it suits us, it serves us, it's to our advantage, which, as I've said before, and I'm sure I will say many times again, puts us at an extreme disadvantage spiritually. It is very, very hard to stay hungry when you're full. And in Luke, which also records this sermon of Jesus, includes not only the blessing to those who ache and yearn and long for things to be different, those who are not satisfied with the way that the world is, but he actually includes the converse negative statement, and he says this, Woe unto you, who are satisfied. I think those should be words that should strike us between the eyes and cause us to shift on our seat a little bit. Right? Jesus says, look, things in this world are wrong. They are broken. They are not the way God intends currently. And he says, if you know and you feel that things are so wrong that it causes you to ache in your soul, blessed are you because you're going to love what I'm going to do. But he also says, if you're pretty much satisfied with the way the world is, if you just want like a little tweak there and a little tweak there, but ultimately you're mostly satisfied, he says, woe unto you, you're 
probably not going to like what I'm about to do because I didn't come to, t- to tweak anything, but to usher in a whole new arrangement. So I want us to ache a little bit this morning. I feel like that's a pretty appropriate response to the way the world is. And I've got some stats for you, and I promise I didn't pull these off somebody's Facebook post. These are real, and they're verifiable. If you want to know where I got them, I'd be happy to share. But listen to this, just to illustrate what I'm talking about. 16% of the world, that's 1.2 billion people, by the way, live on less than $1 a day. To put that in perspective, that is essentially four times the population of the entire United States lives on less than $1 a day. 40%, almost half, lives on less than $2 a day. Almost half the world. In other words, that's about 56 bucks per week for a family of four. That's all they have. 80% of the world live on less than $10 a day. Right, that's like two grande lattes at Starbucks. 80% of the world, and that's all they have to try and survive. And many of them can't which is why 17,000 children die from hunger every day. And to put that in perspective, as we talk about brokenness in this world, meanwhile, while 17,000 children die every day from hunger, the nations of the world spend $3 billion per day on defense, with the U.S. spending 56% of that. Right? To put that in perspective, to put each each day for every child who dies of hunger, the nations of the world spend $176,000 on security, which is essentially just defending ourselves from one another. Can we see the madness of this? The brokenness. And there are talking heads on television and radio that will tell you, well, this is just the way that it has to be. BS. Right? If we don't spend money on billion-dollar bombers, everything is going to go wrong as if things are not already very, very wrong. And and Jesus says, the first response is to hunger and thirst and ache for the way that things are. To acknowledge that the current arrangement is not okay and not what God intends. Can you feel the tension in the room? (laughs) If you're listening to the podcast or watching the video, there's tension. And you can probably feel it on the other side of the screen. That's because to us, the way we receive this, it's tough. It's challenging. It causes us to kind of sit back like, I don't know about this, Jesus. And I want you intimately involved in my life. Just don't mess with my business. It strikes us a different way than people in Bangladesh. People in Bangladesh hear this, and this, these are the words of life. They're like, who is that guy? I want him. Have my everything. Can we put him in office? Right? If Jesus was to run for president in the U.S., which he wouldn't, by the way, because he's already Lord and Lord of a very different kingdom. But if he was, let's, let's just be honest. We wouldn't vote for him. We wouldn't. All along the campaign trail, we would call him all kinds of things. Communist, maybe. He starts saying things like this. At the very least, we'd say, so un-American. That man can't possibly be president. Right, but to those who live or try to live off of one, two dollars a day, yes, Jesus, yes, take everything. I have nothing. You are everything. Well, I'll follow you 
Let's, let's put you in office. All right, it's tough. And I think it's just worth talking about and being aware of the way that we hear Jesus' words. And by the way, I think this is one of the reasons that, you know, we like the idea of Jesus and we like the love talk and the grace talk, but when it comes to actually rearranging our lives to be obedient, so many of us are hesitant because we want a little tweak here and a little tweak there, but ultimately we're pretty satisfied and pretty full, not always hungry and thirsty. So if I can, let me just lean in a little bit harder. Let's go back to what Jesus is saying. He's saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who long and yearn and ache for the world to be made right, for the kingdom of God to come, whose righteousness is characterized not just by moral virtue or personal piety, but by inner character that moves them to action, that moves them to be a part of restorative justice. Just so you know, this is, this is an idea. I dare you to start reading your Bible and look for it because it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's splashed all over the pages. God's intentions for his people in this world. If you go back to Micah uh, 6.8, it says this. uh, The prophet reduces it down to this. He says, you know, you're all about your sacrifices and your religion and your assemblies and all these other things, but here's the deal. Let's just boil it all down. And he says this in verse 8. What does the Lord require of you but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God, friends. Just so you know, that's righteousness. That's the kind of righteousness we're talking about. And just so you know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but throughout the biblical story of the relationship between God and his people, when God's people have moral virtue and personal piety and all their personal holiness thing, everything inwardly is in a line, but it doesn't translate to loving mercy and acting justly. God gets very angry. Very, very angry. Um, and honestly, I could spend the next 20 minutes sharing passages with you. Uh, I'll, I'll just give you a little bit of a taste to honor your time a little bit. I didn't do that for first service, so you're welcome. Um, but Isaiah 1, God says things like this. I hate your personal piety. You go to church all the time. You sing songs. You raise your hands and make a big deal about it. And it but you know what? It makes me sick. What you call moral piety, it makes me sick. Verse 11, I have no pleasure in what you're doing. In the blood of bulls and lambs and goats, your sacrifices, right? If he said, I'm not going to listen to your songs, right? And I'm not going to accept your gifts. Uh, He says this in verse 13, your incense is detestable to me, right? Richard Rohr, in in this verse, he he talks about how this is referring to the priestly, uh, what do you call it? The, The priestly craft. And that us as religious people, we tend to just get in this priestly craft thing where we focus on the religious thing, this, Right? Having our liturgy in a row, having our systematic theology in a row, singing songs and raising hands and all this. He calls it the smells and bells, focusing on the smells and bells. But the truth is, God says, look, that's detestable to me when I don't see justice and mercy from my people. goes on, he says, uh, your, your church services, your, your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate them with all my being. It's God talking. Right? You, go, you go to church, I don't go to church, Baker was saying. Right? They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, whether it be in twi- on Twitter or in the privacy of your own home, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Why? Because you don't care about justice you don't care about mercy. You're playing church and ignoring the needs all around you. Whew. 
And so God's people ask over and over, so what should we do? And in verse 17, he says this, Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Right? Get a little less religious and a little more compassionate. How about that? That's righteousness. Right? James, same thing, says this is what true religion is. James 1.27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You see both of them there. Personal piety, personal holiness, yeah. Keep yourself from being polluted by the world, but not just that. The kind of moral virtue and piety that moves us out. Right? The kind of, the kind of piety that causes us to have calluses on our hands. It's justice. It's righteousness. Isaiah 58, the same thing. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? This is the kind of fasting I like, God says. To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is that not the kind of fasting I want? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide to poor, uh, to provide the poor wanderer? Sounds an awful like, a lot like a refugee to me with shelter, when you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. And verse 8, then, when you do that, when you do that, then your light will break forth like the dawn. Right? You want people to know what I'm like? You want to see the extraordinary happen? Right? You, want to, you want to see revival? You want to see me work modern-day miracles? Stop just going to church. Right? Stop just singing songs and listening to podcasts and throwing up prayers. He says, yeah, do all those things, but let it move you to what I'm about, what I'm doing in the world, to participate in the kingdom of God. Right? It shouldn't surprise us then when this Jesus, whose birthday we're getting ready to celebrate, when he kicks off his public ministry before the Sermon on the Mount, he walks into the temple And this is what he says about himself, echoing the Old Testament. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is Jesus. right? This is the heart of God. This is righteousness. Right? It's participating not just in spiritual practices, singing songs, but letting it move us to restorative justice, right? which involves loving and serving the poor. It's, it's, it's loving justice, loving mercy. It's walking humbly with your God. It's being engaged. It's not changing the channel and forgetting. Right? Jesus, this is what he was all about. Right? And restorative justice, it also includes going after those who are very far from God. People who don't look like maybe you, and they don't believe like you, and they maybe don't vote like you. Right? And so we find Jesus breaking all the rules. This is why Jesus invited sinners to his table all the time. In fact, I don't think Jesus got into trouble about more than about anything else than those he ate with. Right? He experienced table fellowship with people who had no business being around the table with a rabbi. And Jesus did this because that's who God cares for. God is about restorative justice. And restoring people to God is a very big part of that. There's a reason Jesus uh, confronted the temple system later in Matthew. Right? Because religion had become big business, big money. 
Not all that alike today. But rather than building a bridge and going after those who don't speak the language and they don't like church people, you know, they don't get this, rather than being like, well, they just don't get it and I get it, he went after them. And he went after the temple system, right? This thing that was supposed to facilitate connection with God and bring people near was being used. Because it was big business, man, the only people who could participate in it were like the religious elite and people who could afford very expensive offerings. The rich, the wealthy, the advantaged. And Jesus went after that. He went after that. In fact, he laid his life on the line to tear that thing apart. That's how, that's how close this is to the heart of God. This is a part of the character of God. Right? God emptied heaven of its greatest treasure to go after them and to undo that. It's the reason that Jesus reached out and touched the leper, knowing full well that would make him ceremonial, ceremonial unclean. Religious people, religiously, wouldn't do that, but Jesus did say, I will touch them. Somebody's got to love them. If you guys aren't going to be about what God is about, then I will. It's the reason that Jesus healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. Breaking a rule, by the way, which made the truth police very, very angry. Right, this, is, this is why people hated him. Right, people did not hate Jesus because he was so, like, he had such great moral virtue. He's just so personally pious, so holy. That's not why they hated him. They hated him because of stuff like this. Because his real righteousness exposed their fake pretend righteousness for as pathetic as it really was. And he invites us to more. He calls us to, to more. Right, Jesus, our Redeemer, our Savior, our Lord, models for us a different way. He invites us to a different way. Right? And call me old-fashioned. I'm, I'm a pastor. I think about these things, but I can't help but imagine what would happen if an entire community of faith lived like that and adopted that kind of righteousness that allowed God to produce in them a hunger and a thirst for what God desires in the world and a holy discontent for the way that things are right now. Oh, I want to see that happen so bad. And right now it's, it's Christmas season, which means all of us are making all kinds of financial decisions. Some of them good, maybe some of them not so good. You know, I, I pulled this up. This is very interesting. The average American this year will spend $700 on Christmas gifts, which, just so you know, equates to $465 billion. Oh. I love giving gifts. Just so you know, this week we are buying gifts. I just know for me, and this is one of the sucky parts about being a pastor, is I have to think about this stuff all week, and it screws with my head. <laughs> I can't just shut it off. So this week, I've got on my Amazon wish list, I, I want a new TV so bad. Because we have like one of those big rear projection TVs that are the size of a smart car, you know, and they're about as heavy. You know, the kind that when you put them on Craigslist, you have to try to pay people to take them and they still won't. We've got one of those. And so I've got on my wish list three flat screen TVs because I don't know which one I want. I want all of them. But, you know, and so this week, I mean, I'm wrestling with this. You know, and no less than three times I went to my wish list and I, I almost clicked the button. But about this time each year, I get a couple other things in the mail. I get a couple magazines from International Justice Mission and World Vision. And International Justice Mission is what it sounds like. They are participating in God's 
restorative justice mission in the world. Specifically, one of the most specific things they do is they go and they rescue girls out of human trafficking all over the world. And they do it in a pretty incredible way. And, and they will mount evidence against these brothels and the owners of these brothels. And they will, they will use the international community to put pressure on the local leaders to actually do something about it. And they just put these guys away forever. They rescue these girls. They rehabilitate and employ these girls. They're amazing. And that stupid magazine is sitting on my desk right next to my computer staring me in the face. You know, in World Vision, right? they, they, they serve the poor. They feed the hungry. They clothe the naked. You know, and, and so I just couldn't do it. And here's the thing. You can spend $700 this Christmas and still be extraordinarily generous. I just can't. I don't have enough money to do both. You know, and so it's staring me just right in the face. And I know that someday I'm going to have to answer to God as somebody who is, at least relatively speaking in the world, one of the most wealthy people alive, a part of the the most powerful nation in the world. And I'm going to have to answer for what I did with what God entrusted to me. And I want to ache, and I want to burn, and I want to yearn for the things that, that are on God's heart and be a part of changing things. You know, and it's really, really easy to, to get cynical, you know, and to look at the needs of the world and be like, what can I really do? I can't really do anything. But the truth is, every single one of us can do something. Every day, every week, every single one of us had the opportunity to, to enter in and to participate in small acts of restorative justice. And the, and the truth is, man, so that's the heart of God. I mean, the that cover on the daily news is not that far off. Because true righteousness is about more than just prayer. Yes, pray. Of course we pray. There's power in prayer, but we don't just do that. We move, we act, we intervene. And friends, when we do, God shows up. And as a pastor, I get to see, I get to see that. Are you hungry for that kind of righteousness? What are you aching for? What are you hungry and thirsting for? What are you chasing after? Are you hungry for that? And here's here's the, the cool thing. I think more and more of us are. Because I get to hear the stories. And I get to watch and I get to be a part of it. I get to see, you know, as a couple weeks ago, somebody from our community showed up at my front door with $1,000 worth of grocery gift cards and said, let's go bless some people who need it. Right? That's restorative justice. I saw it again this week when somebody else was like, hey, I want to buy a bunch of shields and Target gift cards to bless people who don't have much this holiday season. It's a beautiful thing. I saw it a couple months ago when we had a gal, single mom who's a part of this community who was in an abusive relationship that she was struggling to get out of. And two of our guys went over to the apartment and the boyfriend or ex-boyfriend was there and freaking out and getting violent. And they stepped in and they helped her get the heck out of Dodge to the glory of God. It's a beautiful thing. I, I, I see it in Jeff Miller's Missio group who's coming alongside families who have a parent who's incarcerated to help love on those families, care for those families, provide for those families. I saw it in our Thanksgiving dinner that the Bay team helped put on over fed this massive meal to people who otherwise would not be having a big meal on Thanksgiving to over 100 people. Right, I see it out front, right, those gifts underneath that Christmas tree 
what is it, over 150, pre- or 150 presents provided for families who have a parent who's incarcerated and families down in the, the Bay neighborhood. Oh, it's so, so beautiful. I saw it when the Bay had a need for diapers, single moms, struggling moms, and you guys showed up. And by the way, look around. We're not that big, and we're very, very young. You showed up with 5,000 diapers like that. Right? That's what I'm talking about. That's, that looks more like righteousness than somebody who just hides in their room and studies the Bible. That's what Jesus is talking about. It is a beautiful thing, and you get to see, I get to see often how people respond in those moments. And that the look on their face, it is like God has just showed up in their life in such a profound way, like he showed up on their doorstep. And the truth is, in a way, that's exactly what he did. Right in that moment, right there, they got a taste of the kingdom of God, of the way the world ought to be, of what God is enacting through his people. And man, when a whole community does that together, Look out. I, I want to see that. All right, may it be so. Let me pray for us. Lord God, it's a challenging message. And it ought to be. It ought to be. Lord God, I never want to take lightly what you've entrusted to me and to us. We have more privilege and and opportunities, more money that will come through our hands, all kinds of resources than most of the rest of the world will ever see in their lifetime. And Lord, I I just think that there's a responsibility that comes with that in a world that is so broken. In a world where thousands of children die of hunger every day, it's just, that's not... That's not okay. And so we just collectively as a, as a community acknowledge that. That the way the world is currently ordered is unacceptable. And so, Lord God, we ask that you would produce in us not a satisfaction with the way things are, but a hunger and a thirst, a yearning and aching, a longing for things to be different. And to allow that to move us past simple moral virtue into real righteousness, into restorative justice, into loving and serving, into doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with you, God. Lord God, make us into that kind of church, into those kinds of people. May it be so. And now we come before you now, Lord, as imperfectly as we do in worship. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.